you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. Growing up, I was never really a good test taker. Uh, I'm sure sometimes teachers looked at my test and laughed at some of the answers that I gave. But maybe not as hard as the teachers that read the answers to these test questions that some children filled out on their tests. So take, for example, some of these answers that children gave on their test. What ended in 1986? 1985. You're a couple years off, but that's close. <laughs> if Bob had 36 bars of candy and he ate 29 of them, what does Bob have? Diabetes. Diabetes. Yeah, you guys have taken this test. That's right, Bob has diabetes. You guys are stealing my thunder. That's okay, that's good. All right, see if you know this one. In what battle did Napoleon die? What battle did Napoleon die? His last one, that's right. He died in his last battle. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? At the, you guys have taken this test already. Okay, then what is the main reason for the test? failure. <laughs> what should you never eat before breakfast? Lunch and dinner. I heard dinner up there. So if you had three apples and four oranges in one hand, and you had three apples and four oranges in the other hand, what would you have? Huge hands. That's right. Exactly. You guys are awesome. I'm telling you. If it took 10 men eight hours to build a brick wall, a brick wall. How long would it take four men to build the wall? None. The walls are already. Who is saying these answers up there? It's got to be a bar field. It's got to be a bar field. Scott, you must be proud. You have got to be really proud of that. Yes. Well, this morning we are going to talk. Uh, again, about taking tests. The last time I spoke, I spoke out of James chapter 3, and an, I offered uh, an introduction before we got started in our message, and I'm going to do that as well this morning, but after we read our text. So if you would, uh, stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read our text this morning. The Word tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can open it this morning and God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into truth. Father, I pray that you would guard the words that come out of my mouth. Father, I pray that they would indeed exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Because your word has told us that when the name of Jesus is high and lifted up, that you would draw all people unto yourself. And that's what we desire this morning. God, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us who are gathered in this place. But Father, most of all, I pray that it would bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray this in the strong and the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
To get the meaning of this passage and to get it in its context, we need to understand that the book of James is a book about faith and action. Matter of fact, James chapter 1 verse 22 says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Warren Wearsby wrote a commentary on the book of James entitled, Be Mature, Growing Up in Christ. So James is basically a book of tests that challenges us us to see if our faith is real, to see if our faith is genuine. And not only does it test us to see if our faith is real and genuine, it tests us to see if our faith is indeed maturing. Take, for example, there's the test of how we respond to his word, the test of impartial love, the test of righteous works, the test of humble wisdom, the test of worldly indulgence, the test of truthfulness, the test of prayerfulness. And it goes on to speak about many other tests. But this morning, we are going to look at the first test that he offers in the book of James, and that is the test of trials. So if our faith is genuine and our faith is growing, the way we handle trials should reflect to us and to those around us that our faith is indeed growing and that our faith indeed is genuine and it is maturing. So I want us to take a test this morning, and it has three short questions, and the answers will come as we go along. So the first question that I want us to answer this morning in regards to our test is this. Do we have the right attitude when facing our trials? Verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So in order for us to have the right attitude, we must first understand that we will indeed face trials. The Word tells us, and you've been taught all your life, that Christians uh, live a life of trials. It's not if they will come, but it's when they will come. I think it's unbiblical to think that just because we are a Christian that we will not have trials. But some are out there teaching the, this very opposite. They teach, if you have enough faith, you won't have any health problems. If you have enough faith, you won't have any financial problems. If you just have enough faith, and what they're doing is putting the onus back on themselves and the amount of faith that they have. But what we need to know and understand this morning is put our faith and trust in a God who will see us through the trials and know that we indeed will have trials. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Then in Acts 14, 21 and 22, it says, After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that they must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Peter 4, 12, we learn that, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
And the Bible is full of illustrations of how God's people went through and endured trials, but not only how they went through and endured trials, they endured those trials with joy. But in order for us to have the right attitude, we must know and come to the agreement that because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will face trials. Coming to faith in Christ does not mean the absence of trials. Matter of fact, Warren Wiersbe says that Satan fights us, the world opposes us, and this makes life a life of battle. Let's consider Again, the setting of the book of James. James is the first book recorded in the New Testament. It was written between 48 and 52 A.D., which means that it was, that it was written uh, just a few short years after the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. James was all around persecution. He witnessed it uh, uh, firsthand. Matter of fact, the author, James, is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He saw Jesus do miracles, but he also saw Jesus endure hardship. And not only did he see Jesus endure hardship, he saw the people that Jesus healed before they were healed and what kind of hardship and suffering that they had to endure. And matter of fact, James uh, died a horrible death. He was, he was taken by mob and he was thrown off of a building. And then after they threw him off the building because they didn't kill him, he was stoned to death. James firsthand experienced trials. Becoming a Christian and having faith in Jesus assures us of this very thing, that we will have trials. When I was growing up and I did something so bad that my mom wouldn't spank me, she would just look at me and say, you just wait till your dad gets home. And I'm sure some of you have had that message too from your moms that you just wait until your dad gets home because you know what's going to happen when dad gets home. I never had to guess when my mom told my dad what what I did, I never had to guess what my dad was going to do. I knew what was coming. Or you could be like the little boy who got caught doing something bad in church. His dad picked him up, put him over his shoulder, and was walking out the church for everybody to see. And all the eyes of the people in the congregation turned to that little boy because they knew what was going to happen to that little boy. But it didn't stop that little boy from yelling out, Y'all pray for me. Please, y'all pray for me. (laughs) That church knew what was going to happen to that little boy. We know we are made aware of and we are given the assurance that we will have trials in our life when we become a Christian. Matter of fact, listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32. It says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured our hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partakers with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I love what John MacArthur says about this passage of Scripture. 
He says that these folks did not come to faith in Christ to relieve their pain and suffering and to relieve the the harshness of their circumstances. They came to faith in Christ knowing that their circumstances would become worse. Matter of fact, it tells us that many of these people who came to faith in Christ had to go to prison, who were imprisoned for their faith. And those who were not imprisoned for their faith would risk everything that they had to go visit those that were in prison. And matter of fact, the scripture tells us that when they were going to see them in prison, they looked back and they saw that their houses were being plundered. And they went on their way joyfully because they knew what they had waiting for them was so much more priceless and better than what they were enduring right now. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is there a trial that you're going through? Is there something that, 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 is, that has just got you, knocked the wind out of your sail, and you're wondering, man, why am I having to go through this? Well, it's because the Lord ordained it. He wants us to know that because we believe in him and he wants us to know that we are uh, not alone in this trial. People who came to faith in Christ literally faced life and death situations. But what does that mean for us today? Matt Chandler states this. He says, persecution is still a reality for Christians throughout the world today. But these aren't the only kinds of trials worthy of mention in Scripture or worthy of the Spirit's comfort through the Word of God. James says trials of various kinds, meaning family, health, school, relationships, all of these can be trials. Am I talking to somebody this morning? You know, you've heard it said, believers are either in a trial or they're coming out of a trial, or they're fixing to go in one. And let me add this. Some of you may be walking with somebody else and helping them through a trial. But how, then, are we to meet this, choice, this, this trial with the right attitude? Because James says, not only just to endure the trial, he says that you are to go through the trial with joy. Our attitude should be one of joy. So how can we do this? How can we, in the midst of our trial, have joy? Well, a key word in verse 2, if you look in your scripture, is the first word. It says count. Some of your translations may say consider, but the word is a financial term that means to evaluate. It's the same word that Paul used several times in Philippians chapter 3. Warren Wiersbe says that when Paul became a Christian, he re-evaluated his life and set new goals and priorities. Things that were important to Paul became garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. And so Paul counted it all all the stuff that he endured and all the stuff that he went through, and you think about all the things that he went through, he said, all of that is garbage for the sake of knowing my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wrote the book of Philippians from a jail chained to a Roman soldier. And he wrote, he said, I've learned to be content with much, I've learned to be content with little. He's also said, you know, I I don't have to be anxious for anything. 
But in everything, every circumstance that comes into my life, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I'm going to let my request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. You see, Paul evaluated his life. He counted his life in light of knowing Jesus, his Savior. That what it, that's what it means to evaluate our life. That's how we can face a trial with joy that we know for sure that we know the Lord Jesus. So in the face of financial hardship, do you know that you belong to the Lord Jesus? Do you know that in the face of health issues that you belong to the Lord Jesus? Do you know that in the face of of relational issues that you belong to the Lord Jesus. Because if you know that you belong to the Lord Jesus, there's one immutable thing that you cannot change, that no one can ever change, the very fact that God is good. God is good. God is good in the midst of our trial. And that will never change. And not only will that never change, but the Bible teaches us that God is not only good, but he's for us. Even in the midst of our trial, God is is for us. That is what we evaluate. That's what we count this morning in the midst of our trial, that God is good and that he is for us. The second thing that we need to evaluate is our own values. What is it that we place a high priority on? What is it that we value the most? If we, if we value comfort more than character, then trials are going to get the best of us. If we value the, the, the material and the physical more than the spiritual, trials will get the best of us. If we evaluate and value the temporal and the here and now more so than the eternity that God has for us, then trials will get the best of us. Wearsby goes on to say, if we live for only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. So this morning, let me ask you something. Are you going through a trial? And to answer this question honestly, are you facing that trial with joy? And the way that we face that trial with joy is to count it joy because we have God who will never leave us nor forsake us. We have his son Jesus to save us from our sin. And then we need to evaluate our life. This is where we need to answer the question, do we really value that more than anything in our life? That's how we can count it on joy. Second question this morning is this, do we understand the purpose of our trials? Look with me again in verse three, it says, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Along with having the right attitude, we must understand the reason why. What's the purpose of it all? So in answering this question, we must remember the original intent of the book of James. Again, remember the book of James was written in order for us to know the genuineness of our faith and also to know the maturity of our faith. So the first and most important thing that we must ask ourselves in the midst of trials is this, is our faith real? Is our faith genuine? 
In his commentary on the book of James, John MacArthur states, the master counterfeiter of saving faith is Satan. Disguising themselves as angels of light, he and his servants deceive the unwary through false systems of religion, including false forms of Christianity. Thinking they are on the narrow path leading to heaven, those who are trapped in counterfeit religion or who simply trust in their concept of salvation are actually on their way to an eternal damnation. That deception extends to those within biblical Christianity who are deluded about their salvation. So if trials are meant for us to test the genuineness of our faith, the question is, do we have genuine faith? You know, I believe there are certain things that accompany those who profess to be a believer in the Lord Jesus. Obviously, they have a love for God. Obviously, they have a love for His Word. Obviously, they have a love for others. They have a love uh, for uh, um, his, his church. There are many things in God's Word that, that gives us evidences of if we are truly and really a genuine believer a true believer will desire to walk in obedience. A true believer, believer will desire to forsake sin. A believer will want to be in fellowship with other believers as Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us. You know, it frightens me. It should frighten all of us to think about there are many people probably on church rolls today in America that are not genuinely converted. They may have said a prayer at one time in their life. They may have walked an aisle at one time in their life. They may have even been baptized. But since that point in time, there's not been any real evidence of them being a Christian. There's no love for his word. There's no desire for obedience. There's no desire for righteousness. There's no desire for the things of God. They don't love the things that God loves and they don't hate the things that God hates. You know, the other day in staff meeting, we're talking about the decline in attendance in a church, in churches all across America. Attendance is declining in our churches. And it's frightening to think that a person feels like they are an active member of that church if they attend church one time a month. They feel like they are a they they feel like they are an active member of that church if they attend one time per month. And I ask, where's the evidence of a being a genuine believer in that kind of sentiment? They feel like if I go to church one time a month, I'm good. I've satisfied my commitment. I can check that off my list. But people who profess to be a Christian and live life with no regards to his word, to being obedient to his commands, to having no desire to be with God's people on, in worship on a regular basis, and those who uh, don't desire to walk in righteousness, when a trial comes their way, it rocks their world, not only because that it's, it's not that because they have uh, not, uh, faith that's not maturing, it's that they have no genuine faith at all. And that is sad. 
John MacArthur says this, genuine faith will prove itself in times of trouble. That is especially true for unbelievers who consider themselves to be Christian and need to recognize that faith that is reliable only when things are going well is not saving faith. It's worth nothing. So is our faith even stronger in the midst of trials? But the genuine believer can say, I know I don't face this trial alone. Therefore, I can face this trial with joy. So that's the first purpose. Knowing the purpose of our trials reveals the genuineness of our faith. Secondly, the purpose for our trials is to see if our faith is indeed maturing. Is it moving us along and deepening our relationship with the Lord Jesus as he patiently works his character in us to become more and more like his son Jesus? I saw a cartoon the other day of a mom welcoming her son home from school. She opened the door for him and she said, Son, what did you learn at school? He said, Well, apparently not enough. They want me to come back tomorrow. <laughs> Life is a process. Becoming like Christ is a process. It's not an overnight adventure. It's a step-by-step transformation. Listen to what Romans 5, 3 through 5 says. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These people rejoice in the midst, in the middle of their trial, not because of the trial, but because that the trial produces in them a step-by-step process, a step-by-step transformation that makes believers more like Christ. And shouldn't that be our aim? Shouldn't that be our goal? To know that we are genuinely saved, to know that our faith is real, And then to know that our faith is improving, that our faith is maturing. And each day as life goes on, we are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Shouldn't that be our heart's cry? After her first year of marriage, Laura Story's husband was hospitalized with a brain tumor. Laura stated in an interview that there was a time... He was on a breathing machine, and we weren't sure if he was going to make it. She said, I spent my whole life singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. But until Jesus took me through something where my only option was to trust him, I didn't really know that sweetness." While supporting her husband through surgery, radiation, complications, and intense physical therapy, Story composed this song. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear 
each spoke in need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness and we doubt your love as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we would have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know the pain reminds this heart that this is not, that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, and the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise? A faithful response to such a hard trial like this only comes when we learn to trust the Lord through a trial. And knowing that when we come out on the other side of that trial, and knowing that when we come out of the other side of that heartache, it's not that just our faith is intact, but our faith through the trial has been growing all along. So to answer our second question this morning, do you know and understand the purpose of your trials? We must answer these two questions. Number one, do you know that you have genuine faith? Do you know that there was a time in your life where you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, knowing that he died in your place to take all your bad so that he could give you all his good and that he gave to you his righteousness? Was there a time that you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus? And that from that moment on, what happened was a life of obedience, not perfect obedience, but obedience, a love for his word, a love for his people, a love for his church, a love to do the things that God wants us to do. To answer the question, do we know the purpose of our trials, we must ask ourselves that question. And then secondly, we must ask ourselves the question, do we know that our faith is indeed maturing? Our last point this morning, and the last question is this, do we have a submissive will? Is our will submissive to the Lord? Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The key word here is let. God cannot build our character if we are not willing to let him. Warren Wearsby says, If we resist him, then he chastens us into submission. But if we submit to him, then he can accomplish his work. When we let God do his work in us, we embrace the trial because we know that God is working in us to produce perfection and completion 
That's what the Scripture teaches us and it's what it tells us. But what does perfection and completion mean? Certainly it can't mean that we will be uh, perfect in, in obedience because we won't. We will never ever reach sinless perfection because we know even later on in James chapter 3, the author tells us that uh, we all will stumble in many ways. And so what does it mean that we will be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? It simply means that we will be mature. So what does that mean? What does it mean that, that we will be mature? It means that in our life, no matter what happens, we desire that God gets the glory. No matter what trial comes our way, we're able to say, to God be the glory. And the ultimate maturity we can, we can use the words of Paul when he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you think of the, the, the depth of that statement? He says, to live is Christ. If I continue on living, it's going to be for his glory and I'm so thankful that he's given me my next breath. But honestly and truthfully, to die is gain. Because I will get to be with my Savior for all eternity. That is spiritual maturity. That is spiritual grown-upness. I know many of you have faced trials. And I've been by the side of some of you who have gone through trials. And your response is, to God be the glory. Whatever it takes... God is doing something. I don't pretend to know everything that he's doing, but he will get the glory. To God be the glory. John MacArthur says it like this. He says, he says God is most glorified in us. I'm sorry, this is John Piper. He says, when God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him. That means this, that when a trial comes your way, you're satisfied in your relationship with God enough to say, to God be the glory, because you know that you are satisfied in the fact that God sent his son to die for your sins. You know that God has shed his blood to cleanse you of your sin. You know that he has given you a home in heaven, and nothing, not one trial can take that promise away from you. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So this morning I ask you, are you fighting this battle well? Are you yourself saying, God, I face this trial with joy because your name ultimately will be glorified. If you answered yes to that, but you're like, well, how? How do I submit my will to that? How do I, how do I just yield my will to the Lord in this situation and in all situations? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, real quick. It says, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe this passage tells us and helps us uh, uh, know how we can yield our way to the Lord Jesus. And the first thing, I've got three things that I want to say about this. This is not another sermon, I promise. Just three quick points that we're going to get to quickly. And the first thing that we learn from this verse that helps us surrender our will to the Lord is this. First thing you do, look around. The passage says... Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, we know Hebrews 11 is about the hall of faith. It's about how, how, God's, how God's servants endured a life of hardship and who are now in, in glory in heaven. But for us, what does that mean for us? It simply means look around. You don't walk through this battle alone. There are people who are right here to help you walk through this valley. When I was in high school, I used to kick extra points. Now, I didn't get to kick a whole lot of them because we didn't score. They're about like the Tar Heels, right? They're not like Clemson. I mean, Clemson's kicker got wore out yesterday. I mean, he kicked so many extra points. But this one game, we did score, and I got to go out on the field and attempt an extra point. And my dad was on the sidelines. He was part of the chain gang. He, was, he carried the first down markers and all that. And this particular play, it was a bad snap. And me, being the, the good kicker that I was, I ran back and I, and I recovered the ball. And when I recovered the ball, the point of the ball w- went right on my diaphragm. And then as I landed on the ball, about that minute, the whole defense landed on top of me. And every bit of air that I had in me went out of me. And all I could hear was my dad saying, get up, boy. Get up. Get up. You're all right. You can do it. Get up. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I mean, I'm just rolling around on the field. I still could not breathe, but I could hear my dad's voice because he was around me and he was saying, get up, son. You can do it. We need to look around. We need to look around. Because there are people around you when you are walking in the middle of your trial who are saying, get up. I'll walk with you. Give me your hand and let's walk this road together. Secondly, and most importantly, we need to look unto Jesus. We need to look into his face because he is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has made us whole. He's given us his righteousness. And by his mercy, he's he's forgiven our sins. And his authority has given us a home in heaven. And by his strength, we can make it through this trial. When Jesus stepped from heaven's hall, he became one of us and he suffered and died in our place. He took our place on the cross so that we would be assured 
that we wouldn't walk this, this trial alone. But his life here on earth was also a life of suffering. Listen to this quote from this one Bible commentator. It says, we experience pain when we are injured. Sometimes extreme pain. But if it becomes too severe, we will develop a temporary numbness. Our bodies have a way of turning off pain when it becomes too much to endure. In other words, the amount of pain we can endure is not limitless. Therefore, we can conclude that there is a degree of pain we will never experience because our bodies will turn off our sensitivity in one way or another. And then he concludes by saying this. That Jesus had no such limitations. Jesus experienced what we experienced in trials and heartache and suffering, but to the maximum. We look unto Jesus not only uh, because he is the author of our salvation. We look unto Jesus this morning because he is the one who's walked where we have walked. He knows your pain. He knows your heartache. He knows your suffering better even than you know it yourself. And he's saying, look unto me. Let me walk with you. Well, not only do we look around, and not only do we look to Jesus, but lastly this morning we look forward. We look forward because we know that the Bible teaches us that we look ahead. After Jesus had passed through his suffering, he defeated it. He defeated his suffering. And now in his place, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. There will be a day when our pain and our suffering are gone. Look around. There's people to help you through your pain, through your suffering. Look to Jesus because he is the one who will help you through your pain and suffering. But look forward to the day when your pain and your suffering will be done. I remember back in 2016... We had a mission trip to Malawi. Kevin Seeger and I would take turns preaching to uh, the adults who had gathered together in this one small building while the rest of our team was out doing VBS with uh, the children. And I remember this one day in particular that as I stood there preaching, there was a man to my right who was obviously crippled, had a hard time walking if, and if he could even walk at all. We went through the gospel message that morning. They're so hungry for the word of God. And in that moment, he repented of his sins and he received Jesus as his savior along with many others in that room that morning. And what I remember most vividly was, was saying uh, to close out our time together was, you know, I may not see any of you again here on this side of heaven, but when I see you in heaven, we will worship to our, our God together because there will be no language barriers uh, and every tribe, nation, and tongue will come together to worship the Lord our God. 
And I remember saying distinctly, and on that day, there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more heartache. There'll be no more suffering. Our bodies will be made new. And I looked over at that gentleman, and tears were streaming down his face because he knew that one day, his pain, his suffering, and his trial would be over, and he would be able to walk upright and walk right up to Jesus and fall on his knees and say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So to submit our will, look around, makes it easy because there's a team of people pulling for you. Look unto Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of your faith. Not only is he the author and perfecter of your faith, he's gone through everything that you go through. And then look forward to the day when there'll be no more pain, no more heartache, and no more trial.